The New Testament reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the well, well-dressed pastor has to make sure that everything is technologically right. I was getting my instructions. As we begin, I want to start as we've done each time when I've uh, had the privilege of being here, is to turn back to the Praying the Psalms page, if you would, please. And let's look just briefly at this psalm as printed in your order of worship. I want you to take a pen or a pencil and draw a line under uh, verse 4, between verses 4 and 5. That's where the psalm breaks. And then another one, just at the very bottom of the psalm, where the last line says, we bless you in the name of the Lord. We're going to separate that from the rest as well. When we look at this psalm, It is about oppression. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. And we see uh, an individual who is speaking as the voice of the whole congregation because we hear that person say, they have greatly oppressed me, and then uh, goes on to say, let all Israel say, they have oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained victory over me. And so in the, kind of the slogan of the women's movement of the 1970s, uh, what is personal is public, or what is personal is political. What's happening to one, even if it's hidden from view, is happening to them all. They're all enduring uh, persecution. The word youth there, you might want to note, and that is uh, in the Old Testament language would refer to Egypt from the time of Egypt forward when, when Israel stopped being just a big family and became a nation. They've oppressed us. And notice then verse 3 that this is not any kind of persecution. It's violent. The plowmen plowed my back and have made their furrows long. This is, uh, immediately comes to mind, we think of Jesus' persecution and uh, before his death, we think of what Paul endured and others, but this is not a messianic psalm per se. Uh, it is just an acknowledgement that the persecution is violent. The next verse is a little difficult to translate. 
it is not maybe necessarily the Lord is righteous, but rather it's in, in, the, in linguistics, it would be an apposition, meaning the righteous Lord. The righteous Lord has cut me free from uh, the cords of the wicked, meaning uh, the harnesses that are pulling the plows that are plowing my back have been cut free. And that's the first half. That is that I have endured this for a long period of time and God has and can and will in the future uh, uh, relieve me from this kind of violent oppression and persecution. The next half of the psalm is all about the worthlessness of the people who are perpetrating this violence on Israel. They're about as, uh, they have about as much worth as the grass that grows on the roof. They have no substance. And they will be treated that way. They will just be, uh, uh, they're worthless. They will just be uh, uh, subject to being burned, uh, being cast off. And not only that, no one is going to give them the common courtesy, and you might want to read the book of Ruth on this one, the common courtesy, may those of verse 8, may those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. That is, as they're, as they're reaping the grain from the grass on their rooftop, no one is going to say, oh, nice crop. And then the last line is separated because here the singers are saying back to Israel who has endured this violent persecution. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So this is quite an interesting psalm. Quite an interesting psalm. The Jewish oppression, uh, Old Testament, is filled with a history of oppression and resistance. We need only read books like Exodus, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. All of these have to do with the persecution of Israel. It's this long history of violence perpetrated against, uh, against these people. And there's a prayer for judgment. May those who are perpetrating this violence be turned back, forced into repentance. Forced into repentance. May they be ones who are shamed. Their sins are made public. It is a public admission of wrongdoing. Their worthlessness is, is made public. The key verses in my thinking are found the second half of verse two. But they have not gained the victory over me. Gritty resistance. I'm enduring. I've experienced this, but they have not gained the victory over me. Resistance. And then verse four, but the righteous Lord has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. That's pretty much this psalm. But for me, there's a problem, and the problem is the gap that stands between verse 4 and verse 5. The psalmist does not tell us what to do in the face of oppression. The writer only tells us that the pilgrims have resisted and that God will again prevail. And so this morning, this is where I want to spend our time in the gap. Now, two caveats here, really very important. 
It's dangerous to speak where the Bible doesn't speak. And whenever you hear someone from the pulpit say something about the gap or what God meant to say, you, you better perk up. The hair on, the, on your arms or the back of your neck had better stand up because heresy's coming. Right? The second then is this. Test this. Hearers should be on their toes and carefully test the words of the speaker. It's not my practice. I have written this out so that I have every word right, correct, um, purposeful. (laughs) Uh, Not meaning that I know that it's all correct and perfect. But I've labored over this so that we're able to understand something. Let's pray together. God, I wish I did not have to preach on Psalm 129. It forces me to face myself, my inadequacies, my sinfulness, even as I try to discern your way. Preaching on this forces me to look deeply into myself and to examine my actions and inaction and how I may be complicit in the oppression of others. Father, our text this morning makes me uncomfortable for other reasons, not the least of which is that I'm speaking into a circumstance where I have little experience. I'm attempting to speak with authority about something that I know only from the margins. So I pray this morning you would lend your help to both your preacher and these good people who have come. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to see the handout I've provided. I didn't hear the little announcement about it. I was going uh, downstairs to get a little drink of water. Uh, But there's information on the Jewish persecution and oppression there, just the briefest of surveys. There's the unhappy history of race and ethnicity uh, relations in Oregon and Portland, a little bit about that on there, and some resources for further study for those of you who want to know more about it or who want to engage in action in some meaningful way. In 1944, Gunnar Meyerdahl, Swedish economist and sociologist who received the Nobel Prize for Economics, wrote the highly influential two-volume, 1,500-page study of race relations in the United States entitled An American Dilemma. The political and social interaction in the U.S., he says, is shaped by the American creed that emphasizes the ideals of individualism, civil liberties, and equal opportunity. But, he says, we value others on the basis of their group membership. And this is the American dilemma. According to Meyerdahl, the cure for the dilemma is two-prong. One, cure the whites of their prejudice. Two, give minorities greater opportunity. (laughs) It took him 1,500 pages to reach that conclusion. It's been 75 years since he wrote these volumes and we have made little progress. We have made progress, but the progress has not been 
far. It has not been fast. Media and domestic policy have shaped our attitudes toward Native Americans, blacks, Mexicans, the poor, women, people who live in cities, or people who live in ghettos, or people who live in West Virginia. Pity the person who has a double or even triple bind. U.S. foreign policy has shaped our attitudes toward immigrants. We've promoted destabilization among the small nations to keep them from uniting as a united front against our interests. And we have demonized them in their own countries so that we transfer that characterization here should they immigrate. Now, oppression and persecution are not confined to matters of race and ethnicity alone. It has many forms and affects many people. Even the oppressed can be and frequently are oppressors. But in the United States, race and ethnicity tend to be the most dominant themes. We tend to value people by categories. We use race, class, gender, Presbyterian, Pentecostal as shorthand for value. Now, oppression is a complicated issue. It is beyond complicated. It is not a tame problem. It is not even a messy problem. But in the terms of social scientists and planners, it is a wicked problem and a social mess. They don't use that term wicked in a moral sense. Rather, wicked problems and social messes have many interlocking issue chains. They have multiple cause and, reflect, uh, cause and effect relationships, and they have feedback loops that amplify the errors and frustrate attempts to solve them. Imagine playing a sinister whack-a-mole game where the moles are vicious monsters that you must drive back into their lairs. But while you're doing it, other players are grasping your arms and holding your hands. And while all the while the clock is running and when the bell rings, the monsters are set free and they eat you all. That's a wicked problem. I'm not foolish enough to believe that I have the answers nor arrogant enough to claim that I am without fault. But I do believe by God's grace, I have a little insight to help us understand both our time and this psalm. The Psalms of Ascents lend us a little help. For example, Psalm 120, where we started, reject the culture of violence. Psalm 122, worship can be a bridge from the world of corruption and distress to one of justice and peace if we commit ourselves to actively seeking the good of the city and those who dwell there. Psalm 123, those who've had their fill of contempt of the proud can look to God for grace. Psalm 125, take the long view. The scepter of the wicked is not permanent, nor will those who pervert God's justice uh, just purposes stand. Or Psalm 126, God will help us through the low places of discouragement and restore, restore us. Our weeping will turn to joy. 
The pilgrims are stepping out with these psalms on a long journey from a culture of violence in search of peace that they believe may only be found in God. The pilgrims believe that at this midpoint of their journey, in Jerusalem, in Zion, where God awaits, may be found the relief they so desperately crave. And I say the midpoint because when the festival is over, they must return home. Back to the culture of violence. Back to the spiritual uh, uh, opposition and oppression. Back to the oppression that they feel as a people. Each psalm in their own way relates the painful difficulty of life, dependency on God as protector and savior, and the hope of peace as a consequence of what? Corporate worship. And now Psalm 129, violent persecution, violent oppression. I want to speak to you of the mechanics of oppression. Where does it come from? How does it work? On August 20th, 1619, the first slave ship landed. August 20th, 1619, the first slave ship landed at Point Comfort or present day Hampton, Virginia. Tuesday. Tuesday is the unholy 400th anniversary of slavery in the United States. In 1968, Donald Noel, researching the origins of this 17th century slavery, identified three factors that lead to social stratification and create the conditions necessary for oppression. Now let's talk about these very quickly, very briefly. I'm trying not to wear my social scientist hat. 20 years plus of teaching this is gonna bleed through, I'm sorry. Okay, so, of the three, he identifies three. Ethnocentrism, competition for scarce or valued resources, and unequal power. Those are the three factors that lead to stratification. Ethnocentrism is the practice of judging another culture by the standards of my own. It turns attention toward me, toward mine, toward my people. It is not the same as being proud of my heritage. Rather, it is judging members of another group as inherently inferior because of their group membership. The worst scoundrel and clown in my crowd is better than the best in yours. That's ethnocentrism. Galatians 3.28, Paul drove a nail right through that one. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, that's race, slave nor free, social class, male nor female, gender, if you are all one in Christ Jesus. We know this to be true, but we are all ethnocentric. Mark that down. We are all ethnocentric. Theologians tell us 
that in prejudice based on ignorance there is no sin because it is subject to correction. But prejudice held in deliberate disregard of evidence is sin because it refuses correction. We're going to talk about this a little bit later. Isaiah 29, 24 gives us evidence. Isaiah gives the evidence of repentance against rebellion. He says this, those who err in mind will know the truth and those with a critical spirit will accept instruction. Competition for scarce resources. Let's just talk about this very briefly. Competition for scarce or valued resources. Let me just say they don't have to be scarce and they don't have to be valuable. I only need to believe they are. The two big ones that are critical in the United States are housing and jobs. If I believe that your group is getting access to the limited supply of jobs or the limited supply of housing, my group will rise up against you. Unequal power. One group must be powerful enough to dominate or subordinate another. The first one, ethnocentrism, is a matter of the mind. The second one, competition, sets the stage for exploitation. The third one, unequal power, sets the stage for coercion. Ethnocentrism. Competition for scarce and valued resources or unequal power. Though they result in stratification, by themselves, these three do not lead to violent oppression or persecution. They must be activated. Three factors that lay the foundation. Now we're going to talk very quickly about three factors that activate them. First, I'm going to tell you a story about good mice and bad mice. University of Tennessee's Walters Life Sciences Building is a model animal facility. It's spotlessly clean, scrupulously obtaining prior approval on experiments from an animal care committee. Excuse me, 15,000 mice pass through that facility annually most of them sacrificing their poor little lives for humanity. These are good mice. And as such, warrant the protection of a special animal care committee. But some mice escape. They are the rebels, the escapees. They run free. They can disrupt experiments with the pathogens they carry. They're the bad mice and must be destroyed, usually by means of sticky traps, and those that don't die in the morning are gassed. The Animal Care Committee deems death by sticky trap unacceptable for the good mice. Prior approval is required before euthanizing a good mouse. No prior approval is required for escapee rebel mice. Once a mouse hits the floor, its status changes. The bare change of a label from pet to pest seals the fate of a good mouse gone bad. Labeling 
amplifies ethnocentrism. Colossians 3.8, Paul warns us to put away malice and slander. Matthew 5.22, Jesus says, don't call your brother a fool. I, had, I have to tell, I'm stepping aside. This is not on my notes. My brothers and I called each other all kinds of names. And this verse haunted me for years because I thought I was going to go to hell because I had called my brother a, something far worse than a fool, <laughs> you know, or they called me. I thought, uh, you know, at least we'll be there together. <laughs> Slurs that demean others amplify the belief that they and their group are inherently inferior. Let me step aside for just a moment. We all practice this. You practice this. You think you're outside of this, but you practice this. When someone cuts you off in traffic, what do you say? What do you call that person? When someone throws trash on the ground in front of your house, what do you say? What do you call them? We're not so far away from this. Slurs that demean others amplify the belief that they and their group are inherently inferior. If I can label you as something less than me, something less than fully human, then I'm free to treat you differently. You're a bad mouse. I can treat you inferior. I can treat you as less than human. And labeling recruits others because I say it out loud. It recruits others to agree with me. And if I am silent, I am in effect consenting. Labeling amplifies ethnocentrism. Structural strain title given to something by Neil Schmelzer, amplifies competition. Structural strain is when society is beset by problems. I have so many unmet expectations. My life is not so good in comparison with others. Uh, There's general discontent and dissatisfaction with the way things are. I must protect the little I have That which I believe is scarce or valuable becomes even more so, and I hug it even more tightly. Structural strain, the just general dissatisfaction with life amplifies this sense of competition. Then there is the growth and the spread of an explanation. It amplifies unequal power. And this is particularly sinister. It is generally an oversimplified statement of the problem. And again, I'm going to step aside and say, when you hear someone say, the problem is this, you can mark it down as they are wrong. There is no the problem. As soon as you try to simplify it down and narrow it down to one simple thing, when you're dealing with a wicked problem, you are wrong. Nothing is simple. Everything is connected to everything else. Growth and spread of an explanation generally is an oversimplified statement of the problem. Its causes, frequently it strives to affix blame who is at fault. Not just what is wrong, but who made it wrong. It proposes some likely solutions, lock them up send them home, 
It's the Jews' fault. It's the blacks. It's the Catholics. It's the Mexicans. It's them. And all that's left now is a trigger event. We need someone to light the fuse. A real or contrived crisis is what leads to oppression. It's what leads to violence. It's what leads to persecution. Three precipitating factors, ethnocentrism, competition for scarce or valued resources, unequal power. Three amplifying actions, labeling, structural strain, a convenient explanation. A trigger event, someone to light the fuse, and the result is a Nazi concentration camp. Look at the handout that I gave you on some of this. What I've given, what I've said to you is too simple. The conditions are infinitely more complex. But I believe this is the context in which we find ourselves this morning. In this present hour, we are waiting for someone to light the fuse. We are desperately afraid someone is going to light the fuse. We are like Habakkuk when God revealed to him that the Assyrians would descend on the ten northern tribes of Israel and scatter them like dust. We are waiting for disaster. But there is hope. There are ways to mitigate this and to help reverse current trends. Remember verse 2 of our passage? Resistance. They have not gained the victory. We have to stand in that space. So, what are we to do in the face of our current circumstances? I believe that we have two sets of responsibilities. The first responsibility is our responsibility for those who face prejudice and uh, oppression and persecution. Our second set of responsibilities are to prepare ourselves for that moment when we too will be in that situation. Let's look at these very, very briefly. When we ask ourselves, what are we to do in the face of our current circumstances and our responsibility for those who are oppressed, I want to focus on three roles very, very quickly. Priestly role, pastor role, and prophetic role. The preliminary step of the priestly role, which involves prayer, the preliminary step is repentance. We must repent of our own prejudices. Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, interceding for the oppressed in Babylon, began by accepting corporate responsibility and seeking God's forgiveness. It began with repentance. Repentance has two basic steps, as you know. The first is turning away. This requires continuous monitoring. Psalm 139.23, a serious invitation to God, which if you read it and you pray it, take it seriously, because the term here for search is continue searching me. 
Search me, God, and know my heart, and test me, and know my anxious thoughts. Know that when you pray this prayer, God may send someone to you, like God sent Nathan to to David, to expose your sinfulness publicly. Or he may allow you to to enter into some context where you're uh, about to be sifted. And you will have the opportunity to discover what your prejudices really are. Repentance begins with turning away, which requires continual monitoring. But it also requires turning toward, which requires continuous effort. Zechariah 7, verses 9 and 10. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. We must give up in this priestly role, as best we can, ethnocentrism in all its forms with the help of God and our friends. We must pray for and with those who endure Oppression. Second is the priestly role that comes on the heel, uh, excuse me, the pastoral role that comes on the heel of this. Very quickly, uh, this is our responsibility for care. You know this from Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. A first step in this, remember Ecclesiastes 3 and James 1, there's a time to listen and be quick to listen. As a sidebar, The discipline of active listening is perhaps one of the most difficult basic, uh, 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 excuse me, the most difficult basic disciplines to master. Really listening to someone else when they're speaking is difficult. Really listening to someone who is oppressed and is currently oppressed and is trying to tell you their life experience without becoming defensive or without trying to, to give them advice Listening to what they have to say can be the most difficult thing you will ever do. I know because I have not mastered it. I try and I try and I try. I have books on my shelf. I've got a wonderful book by Hugo Slim called Listening for Change. What a great title and it's a great book. I have another one called The Art of Humble Inquiry. Leadership Journal has an article I, I kept, I, I give to my students at Portland State University to read. It's by a church planter, a man in Africa. And he talks about people who come, who come from the United States who want to help. And I'm going to paraphrase him because he says it nicer than this. He says to them, just shut up. The problem is, is when an American opens their mouth, everyone else gets silent. If you're part of the dominant class, We have a tendency to have our mouth open all the time. That's why I'm tremendously uncomfortable preaching this to you today. Monsignor Ivan Illich at the conference on inter-American students projects in Cuernavaca, Mexico in April of 1968. In a speech 
that you can find online. So wonderfully titled. To Hell with Good Intentions. I love that title. Brilliant speech he gave. He says, you never ask the marginalized what they want. Maybe they don't want you. Maybe they just want you to listen to them. If part of the pastoral role is to listen, another part is to encourage. And there's lots of scripture on this. Just go get your Bible concordance. Lead it, look up encourage and read those passages. You'll do fine. Let's move on. Create places of refuge. Our homes. Our offices. Our church. I am highly concerned about my next door neighbors who are Hispanic and how they are feeling about what's happening right now. I want our home, Donna and I want our home to be a place of refuge. When I was at Portland State University, I tried to make my office a place of refuge where students or faculty or staff could come in could tell me what was on their heart or their mind, that we could laugh together or cry together. They would feel that this was a safe place. Our pastoral role is to create safety wherever we go, to be people of peace, to stand between those who are in the midst of violence, to be witnesses for Christ. If there's a priestly role and a pastoral role, there is also a prophetic role. We need to hold our leaders accountable as again, Nathan to David. We need to call out heresy where we find it in the church. First Peter 4, 17 reminds us that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. As long as we tolerate this incredible heresy of popular Christendom in the United States, we put all who are believers at risk. Sooner or later, the world will grow tired of this heresy and will turn on us all. Isaiah 58.1, cry loudly, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Verse six, is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? We expose structural oppression in the church and in society, whether it is verbal, emotional, or physical. We hold all of our leaders accountable. I am embarrassed and angered and frustrated by the dehumanizing racial slurs used by our president. At the very least, they normalize racism and xenophobia. At their worst, they inflame and incite others to act out in violent ways. They are 
the mechanism of labeling that leads to something far worse. As a Christian, I find this absolutely unacceptable. And by the way, he is not the only one in positions of power I find unacceptable. The Bible is clear about the role of government. The Bible is clear whether you are a king or a president. Proverb 31, verses 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. How shall we then respond when oppression and persecution comes to us? First, I'm just going to give you some verses to mark down. 1 Peter 2, 20 and 23. Quickly separate in your mind the personal from oppression. Sometimes people don't like you because they don't like you. And sometimes we confuse reactions over our conduct, reactions to our demeanor, our own sinful behavior with opposition and persecution. Stand up and accept what you've done wrong. People are not persecuting you if you're behaving badly. (laughs) Second, don't be surprised if you're treated badly because you are Christian or because the world is taking a particularly ugly turn. First Peter 4 deals with that one. Third, count it a privilege to suffer for Christ. What did Jesus say in a Sermon on the Mount in uh, chapter 5, verses 10 through 12? Or what did he say in John 15, 20? If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Don't be surprised. Four, endure. In the order of worship, we have both Habakkuk 3 and 2 Corinthians 4. Pay attention to those. But also pay attention to the Psalm 129. Remember, these are community psalms. We don't endure this alone. We endure this in community and by the help of God. Five, resist if possible, but do not repay evil for evil, Romans 12, 19, or 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. I'm just thinking of a book I left off of that list. Anything by Walter Wink. I think uh, the powers that be, I don't know whether I've got that on that list or not. And perhaps, as the psalmist points out, and now we've closed the gap between verses four and five, as the psalmist points out, pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 44. Child psychiatrist and author, educator, Robert Coles, has written extensively about children in crisis. He is among my favorite authors. In 1985, he wrote about Ruby Bridges. Ruby was a subject of a Norman Rockwell painting, you might know, is entitled, The Problem We All Live With. And the problem is six-year-old Ruby, in pigtails, walking resolutely to school, accompanied by four U.S. Marshals. 
Every day passing through the crowds, screaming obscenities at her, sometimes spitting. One time a woman pushed a cardboard casket in front of her on the sidewalk with a little black doll inside. She spent every day going to her first grade lessons with her teacher alone, the only child in an otherwise empty classroom. On one particular day, her teacher thought she saw Ruby talking to herself as she walked with the marshals through the crowd. And the teacher asked Dr. Coles to go with her to visit Ruby to make sure that she was okay. She thought she's coming apart. Here's how Robert Coles said the interchange went. We went to Ruby's home that night and I asked her, Ruby, how was your day today? She said, it was okay. Uh, let me point out that uh, in his book on children on crisis that Ruby's coloring pictures while they're chatting. She's drawing pictures. I went to Ruby's home that night and I asked her, Ruby, how was your day today? And she said, it was okay. I was talking to your teacher today and she told me that you asked about something when you came, uh, and she asked you about something when you came early, uh, to school early in the morning. I don't remember, Ruby said. Your teacher told me she saw you talking to the people in the street. Oh yes, I told her I wasn't talking to them, I was just saying a prayer for them. Ruby, you pray for those people? Oh yes. Really? Yes. I said, why do you do that? Because they need praying for, she answered. Do they? Oh, yes. Ruby, why do you think they need you to pray for them? Because I should. Why? This is a psychiatrist talking to a little six-year-old girl. Then Ruby's mother came into the room. She had heard this line of inquiry and she said, we tell Ruby that it's important that she pray for those people. She said that Ruby had the people on a list and prayed for them at night. I said, you do, Ruby? You pray for them at night too? Oh, yes. Why do you do that? Well, because they need praying for. Mrs. Bridges told me Ruby had been told in Sunday school to pray for the people. I later found that the minister in their Baptist church also prayed for the people publicly every Sunday. I said to Mrs. Bridges and then to her husband later, you know, it strikes me that that is a lot to ask of Ruby. I mean, given what she's going through, and they looked at me very confused. We're not asking her to pray for them because we want to hurt her or anything, said Mrs. Bridges. But we think that we should all have to pray for people like that. And we think Ruby should too. And then she looked at me and said, don't you think they need praying for? In the words of the psalmist, and yet they have not prevailed against us. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, this is a difficult subject, one that I wished 
I hadn't drawn. Difficult for me because I know that in my being, I have not fully repented of my own ethnocentrism, my own prejudices, that I have been inactive where I could have been hopeful and helpful. Give us all your strength today and give, I pray, each of us patience with the other. May your blessing be upon us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.